Chris O'Connor, and this is Heart of the Matter podcast of the Heart Theory Collaboratory. As principal investigator, we're really excited to have a team of my colleagues here to talk about acute decompensated heart failure and acute kidney injury. And I'd like to just have my colleagues go around the room and introduce themselves. Dr. Januzzi? Yeah, hi, Chris. Thanks for having me today. It's Jim Januzzi from the Massachusetts General Hospital Heart Center. Maria Rosa Constanzo? I'm from the Midwest Cardiovascular Institute, and I'm obsessed with cardiorenal medicine. <laughs> Dr. Sotka. Mitch Sotka from the Innova Heart and Vascular Institute in Falls Church, Virginia. Dr. Abraham. Hi, Bill Abraham, a heart failure specialist at The Ohio State University. John Tierlink. John Tierlink from San Francisco VA Medical Center and University of California, San Francisco. And I share Maria Rose's enthusiasm for cardiorenal. Well, maybe not quite as obsessed. We'll have to see. <laughs> Marv Constant. Hi there, it's Marv. I'm a heart failure cardiologist, as other people are. And I'm at the Cardiovascular Center at Tufts Medical Center in Boston. Last but not least, in fact, most important that we have our nephrologist, Dr. Stephen Coca. Thanks, Chris. Steve Coca, I'm a nephrologist at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. Thanks for having me on. Steve, we're going to get you to start us off because uh, we've all been struggling for decades on what to do with a rise in creatinine when we our patients are admitted with acute decompensated heart failure. Is it acute kidney injury? You've introduced with your colleagues a term called permissive hypercratinemia, which we think sounds really interesting. Tell us what AKI is and what is permissive hypercratinemia. Acute kidney injury is what the nephrology community renamed the old acute renal failure, starting with the ADKEY consortium back in 2004. And it, it, the renaming has more to do with when you can't do something to treat a condition, you like to show activity, so you reclassify things. And it did lead to a lot of angst because, as you know, a lot of old-school acute renal failure is hemodynamic in nature and does not necessarily involve kidney tubule injury, which would be the acute renal failure classically associated with acute tubular necrosis. In heart failure especially, this is one area where the cardiology literature at least has been, I think, more correct for years because the term often used in the paper to describe this acute rise in creatinine has been worsening renal function, WRF. As we have explored various non-invasive urinary biomarkers to try to ascertain whether patients are having tubular injury, the so-called troponin of the kidneys, and there's been various that have been investigated now for many years, NGAL, KIM-1, IL-18, to name a few. What we've seen in several studies is that even when the creatinine rises in heart failure, there's quite low expression of a lot of these kidney tubule injury biomarkers. Again, as you would expect with the pathophysiology, that's about how to classify things. More importantly than all that, though, is that what does it mean for the patient and for outcomes? And I think we've seen numerous papers over the last decade showing that unlike AKI that occurs in sepsis or with nephrotoxins or with 
renal syndrome or other things, the WRF that can be seen in heart failure, so long as it is accompanied by appropriate therapy, and, and that being decongestion, actually does not portend any bad prognostic signal. And in some cases, portends better outcomes after discharge than if one were not to have this rise in creatinine. Steve, that's uh, that really is well stated, and, and I'm going to ask my cardiology colleagues to jump in here. Maria Rosa, what does that mean to the clinician, though? We can't really tease out a rise in creatinine that could be worrisome and injurious. There's a lot of drugs there. There could be concomitant nephrotoxicity. How do we distinguish what Steve just said? I think one of the distinctive features is the duration, and I'd like to hear what Steven thinks about that. If it's a transient increase in serum creatinine during the congestive therapy, as you said, this is a hemodynamic event and is not a toxic event to the kidney. But as Stephen already pointed out, what really predicts poor outcomes is ineffective decongestion. So our efforts should be aimed at effective decongestion. I realize that there are cases in which it's not easy to determine the hemodynamic status of the patient. And in those cases, I personally have a low threshold to do a right heart cath to see what the intracardiac pressures are. Of course, I look at the pressures if a patient has a CardioMEMS device in place. And more recently, we have increased the adoption of measurement of blood volume and plasma volume, because that may help you also determine the fluid status. Terrific. I'm going to ask Jim Genuzzi, who knows something about biomarkers, um, are there urinary biomarkers that can help us distinguish this, Jim, give us your thoughts. Yeah, thanks, Chris. So the first biomarker that I recommend people to measure is a physical exam biomarker, you know, <laughs> in these patients to really try to get to the bottom of mechanisms for why kidney function may be worsening. And, you know, coming into the past decade, there was the misconception that the mechanism of worsening kidney function in our patients was related to cardiac output, inadequate cardiac output, which is almost never the case. And that is when it is the case, you can see it from across the room, the patients underperfused and in shock. Whereas, you know, overwhelmingly, more often than not, as uh, Dr. Costanzo has said, and, and Dr. Coca, this is related to inadequate decongestion and severe right heart plethora. So physical examination is quite useful in this setting. But regardless of that, to address the question you've asked, yeah, we've looked at different ways to non-invasively try to understand whether worsening kidney function is related to congestion versus some other mechanism. And so the strategy that Dr. Coca mentioned of measuring different individual markers has always been a little bit challenging because if you have a marker that tells you that something's happening to the kidneys, but there are so many different ways that those markers can be abnormal, it's important to have a modifier of some kind. So we published many years ago now, probably almost 20, that if you took nt BNP and paired it up with a kidney injury marker or a, a marker of kidney dysfunction, 
It's the individuals with very elevated values for nt proBNP that have a congestive mechanism. We subsequently followed that up looking at more newer markers, including NGAL, including KIM1, and again showed that it's the double whammy of a market elevation of natriuretic peptide and an elevated NGAL, for example, that identifies patients who particularly respond more favorably to aggressive diuresis. And interestingly, often with improvement in kidney function in that setting, a high-risk population at risk for future events. So it's reassuring to see them get better, but it identifies somebody who's at a higher risk for worse outcomes. Fantastic. But so we're faced with a patient that comes in and this rising creatinine. I'm going to ask John Tierlink and Marv, what do you do with the medicines? What do you do if they're on an ACE inhibitor or an ARB or an ARNI? What do you do with the MRA if they're coming with ADHF and, and a rise in creatinine? So I guess I'll start with this one. First of all, the first thing to target is, is your diuretic dosing to make sure that you're going to be giving effective diuretic dosing. And I think one of the things we see most frequently on, on the wards and patients who are being, quote, refractory to diuretics is that they're getting 10 or 20 or maybe only 40 of intravenous Lasix and they're being considered refractory to Lasix um, and to the furosemide dosing. So first thing is to make sure that when you're giving your doses, you need to give adequate diuretic dosing. And um, I think dose, the dose trial, not to get confused with the nomenclature, the dose trial actually provided some guidance to that where you go twofold from your dose of your oral outpatient diuretic and start there. And that's a good starting point. And you move from that point. In terms of ACE inhibitors and um, so RAS blockade, I tend to actually try to continue it depending on how bad the creatinine is. It depends on the individual, and I will actually go more by EGFR here. Granted, the EGFRs have their limitations in terms of measurements within the acute renal failure setting or the worsening renal failure setting, but I still use it as a guide. And there, I will be more cautious and, and probably withdraw the ACE inhibitors, RAS inhibition, around an EGFR of 30 or below. But before that, I still try to keep them on board. Other people clearly have different practice patterns. I think it's absolutely essential that you continue the beta blockers. We've learned that from all of our acute heart failure trials. You should not withdraw beta blockers unless it's the setting of cardiogenic shock. And the SGLT2 inhibitors, um, we also tend to continue, even though some of the studies have suggested it's not been approved for lower EGFRs, though we've been pushing that envelope as well as current studies. So that's my overall approach. Marv, I'm interested in hearing kind of what, what you'd have to say to that. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, John. And Chris, thanks for having me. I really agree with everything John said, and I would just sort of add to it. You know, if a patient comes in to the hospital on a good regimen of guideline-directed medical therapy, one thing you would like to do at the end of the game is to still have them on good guideline-directed medical therapy. And as, as you watch the patient, and if the creatinine worsens while the patient's here, and the patients come in on an RNA or an ACE inhibitor, you can be pretty sure that those drugs are not what's responsible for this new rise in creatinine. And so it's a question of how much fortitude do you have to a certain extent. But I would have in my mind that if I'm going to cut back 
or I'm going to stop it because I think it's rising so far and so fast. I got to figure out a way to get the patient back on it because I don't think really this was the cause of the creatinine elevation. And the other thing, you know, about it, I'd go even a step further, is if you think about the fact, and this is well over a decade old or more, the fact that rising creatinine has an adverse effect on, on outcome. And we know now, and some of the things that Steve said, that's far too oversimplified, not the case at all. But one of the things, I think, one of the reasons the elevation in creatinine has an association with bad outcome is because the docs stop the drug. And so you're not treating them with drugs that you know will benefit them in the long run. Recognizing that uh, if, it's, if it's rising to a great extent and prolonged, you know, you may have no choice than to consider uh, stopping it. But I really try not to and continue to decongest. That's what we do with drugs. But Bill, you're, you've been working on, and Marie Rosa, you've been working on devices that might actually improve renal function uh, in the setting of ADHF. Could you comment on that? Yeah, no, I'm happy to jump in first. First of all, you know, I want to say that I think the mechanisms for a, a rising or a worsening creatinine, worsening renal function uh, in the setting of heart failure are complex. And I think while we have focused most recently on post-renal mechanisms, renal venous congestion, that there are pre-renal, intra-renal, and, and post-renal components to this in, uh, in many patients, uh, much of it mediated by neurohormonal activation. It's a good reason to try to maintain those neurohormonal inhibitors and antagonists during treatment, uh, but I think the mechanisms are quite complex. Secondly, um, you know, I would say that decongestion does supersede worsening renal failure or function in this setting. We want to push the diuretics to more completely decongest the patient to improve their clinical outcomes. On the other hand, I'm not quite sure that a rising creatinine or a falling EGFR uh, occurs with no cost to the patient in this setting. Uh, and at the very least, I think it does result in some worsening of diuretic resistance, which makes the treatment of these patients a little bit more difficult. Not an argument not to persist. We certainly need to persist. And I think Marv comes up with a very interesting comment about how there are a lot of behavioral challenges that we have to overcome here, literally retraining uh, most nephrologists and cardiologists out there to persist, uh, push the diuretics despite the rising creatinine. So there's a, a lot of challenges here for sure. But another approach is simply to, uh, you know, develop approaches that can result in more complete decongestion of the patient without worsening renal function and maintaining diuretic responsiveness. And certainly in the device development arena, there are a number of approaches that are being actively pursued. For example, uh, the implantation of mini pumps that can improve renal perfusion, essentially uh, temporary mechanical circulatory systems that uh, target the kidney. Uh, other approaches to enhance interstitial decongestion, perhaps by moving more fluid from the interstitial into the circulation and then out through the kidney, we can improve diuretic resistance and avoid worsening renal function in some patients. And remember, the kidney is an encapsulated organ. So if you can promote 
interstitial decongestion within the kidney or reduce renal afterload, perhaps you can have it all. That is diuretic responsiveness, complete decongestion, and no worsening of renal function. So I think that there are a lot of exciting developments currently under investigation. And Maria Rosa, we may have harmed one of those devices, ultrafiltration, in our studies because we stated perhaps this permissive hypercratinemia. Tell us what's happening from your angle in the device world. If I can start with telling you about my talk at the American Heart, it was one of the talks was pearls of wisdom for cardiorenal trialists. And I chose six. Number one is that we as cardiologists need to know renal physiology perfectly, just like our colleagues. The second one was to collaborate always with the trusted nephrologist like Stephen. The third one was you have to really not mix up acute situations with chronic situations because chronic kidney disease definitely is associated with poorer outcomes. The fourth was to be thoughtful about the composite cardiorenal outcomes that you select. The fifth one was embracing of novel statistical methods. And the sixth one, which is what I try to apply every day, is never surrender. Um, to answer your question, and this is why I listed those pearls, is because when we conducted the AVOID trial, the trial was stopped by the sponsor for reasons other than safety or futility. And so we recently presented at the HFSA the reanalysis of avoid using the win ratio. And using the win ratio, UF wins across the board, including cardiovascular mortality at 90 days. So we are, we have launched a new trial called the reverse HF, which is a new and improved avoid trial. And we're going to analyze the data using the win ratio, but we have also introduced other monitoring methods and specifically an improved hematocrit sensor to provide some guidance to the investigator as to when the patient is sufficiently decongested. And I believe that Dr. Coca is on the steering committee, so he can give you additional comments in this regard. That's going to be an exciting trial to hear about. Before we get Steve's comments, Mitch, uh, you think a lot about renal function as an endpoint for development. Is it an adequate standalone endpoint for regulatory approval? I think that the crucial aspect of any endpoint is that you need to be able to measure it. Mm -hmm. And in this case, we don't have a measurement that is independent of the other issues going on, such as congestion. So when you see a elevated creatinine or a GFR that is calculated based on that creatinine, I find it hard to understand exactly what the measurement is telling you. And so that I think if we, in an ideal world, I care what is happening to kidney during a decompensated heart failure event. 
I care what is happening to the kidney after a decompensated heart failure event. And I think perhaps uh, the best measurement is going to be the follow-up longitudinal outcomes for kidney function following an acute decompensation, but perhaps in the setting of congestion and decongestion, it will be hard to know what is exactly happening with the kidney, and perhaps it is unlikely to beneficially affect management or be a useful endpoint. Let's see what Steve has to say. I mean, we tried to develop a drug called Riloflin, and we had a uh, phase two look promising, phase three, uh, nothing there, but we, we did put durability of renal function as part of the composite, and, and we thought that was a step forward. I don't even know what durability is. Is it 14 days, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days? Steve, help us out. For the purposes of the for regulatory agencies, you're going to have to show 90-day improvements in, long, in outcomes. And certainly, I, when I talk about this, I bring up the Rolaflin story, the ultrafiltration story, Neseratide, et cetera, the billions <laughs> of dollars that have been spent in trying to target the kidney primarily to try to fix this cardiorenal syndrome and th- so far has not succeeded. And there are some, some innovative therapies ongoing. On a, at a Bayesian level, I want to be proven wrong, and let's see if something there helps. But I'll give you an example from a cardiac surgery study. The PREVACI, PREVACI acronym, was randomized patients with high injury biomarkers under post-op after, immediately after cardiac surgery to the K-Deagle bundle, which I call, you know, apple pie and ice cream. It was improve hemodynamics, avoid nephrotoxins, no contrast procedures next 72 hours. And it reduced all AKI and moderate and severe AKI by about 25%, uh, uh, an absolute risk reduction of about 25%. Sounded great. But the make outcomes, major adverse kidney endpoints at 30, 60, and 90 days were relatively similar. And in some cases, numerically, higher in the apple pie and ice cream KDGO bundle for the patient. So you really need to prove that durability was my point there. Steve, clinically, this is something that we in the heart failure world have been sort of seeing more and more over the years, whether in clinical trials or in our own clinical practice, which is, you know, there was a time when we'd get that frenzied phone call that the creatinine had gone from 1 to 1.3 and the house officer called it AKI. I call that effective decongestion now. And and so what we've learned is, in fact, rather than fearing what we used to call worsening renal function, provided that, as Dr. Constant pointed out, we keep on going with medical therapy, that rise in serum creatinine may actually be, I don't want to say a target for therapy because that, that overstates the potential role and could potentially be risky to say you should routinely aim for it. But on the other hand, it's not what we sort of one-dimensionally looked at it as, which was a a marker of risk. And what are your thoughts, and Maria Rosa and others, about the data from, say, the heart failure network studies that suggested that the larger benefits were seen in people with these rises in creatinine? I think the problem was that a, a rise in serum creatinine of equal to or greater than 0.3 milligrams per deciliter was made an endpoint and is a meaningless endpoint because it did not alter outcomes whatsoever. And 
one of the things I showed in the talk I mentioned earlier was that all of the studies in acute heart failure that included that measurement in their outcomes were either neutral or negative because it's not a meaningful renal outcomes. Hence, the four pearl be considerate about the cardiorenal outcomes you choose because that's not a wise one. In terms of biomarkers, and this is a question for both Stephen and Jim, one thing that is lacking, I think, on the day-to-day -day care of the patient is measurement of urinary sodium. I find it quite useful in telling me the degree of diuretic resistance. I, I know it's a poor man measurement of diuretic resistance, but it really helps because I have patients that have received um, IV diuretics, I say, in the emergency room, and when I measure the urinary sodium is 34. Obviously, that patient is not having an effective naturesis, and you need to do something about it. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a in the biomarker world. There's a joke that if you know if it costs less than ten dollars, it's a blood test, and if it's more yeah. than ten, it's a biomarker. You know, so urinary yeah. sodium is inexpensive. It's easily measured. And I frankly wonder why we have not been measuring it more frequently, particularly to the extent that it really is a companion diagnostic for the very drug that we're giving, uh, a loop diuretic. You know, there were great data just presented at the American Heart Association meeting looking at the impact of acetazolamide therapy on urinary sodium, showing that in, in parallel with greater decongestion in the ADVOR study, there was heightened naturesis. Similar mm -hmm. data with sodium glucose co-transporter 2 inhibitors now also from Impulse. It really is important to start thinking about, particularly in those patients where we get that phone call, the diuretic isn't working, what do I do? Probably the next step would be a urinary sodium measurement to understand if, in fact, you're getting effective diuresis or not. And if you are not, then it's a question of why. Let's come back to that. That's a, that's a really good point. I was going to just reinforce what Jim said, and I think we should be moving this conversation to measurements of diuretic resistance or responsiveness rather than worsening renal function. That being said, you know, it would be nice to develop some consensus in regard to what rise in creatinine really is too much, because I think if we leave this open-ended, yeah. practitioners are going to become very uncomfortable with what we're mm -hmm. trying to say here. The 1 to 1.3 is a no-brainer, but what about 1 to 2 or 1 to 2.5? You know, is there some level at which one acknowledge that maybe something else should happen? The patient needs a right heart catheterization. We should be measuring uh, urinary sodium or something else, uh, you know, in that setting. But I think to leave this open-ended, we're going to have an awful lot of uncomfortable practitioners out there in the community. I just throw an idea out. I'd love Steve's reaction. I don't know if we have time. I'm thinking of two things. One is I'm thinking about congestion to the extent, and Bill alluded to this, the extent that it increases renal vein pressure is probably the principal hemodynamic force behind renal impairment and heart failure. Now, when we decongest, there's a paradox because we should be reducing renal vein pressure. But at the same time, if we're having intravascular decongestion, then we're hemoconcentrating. And hemoconcentration seems to be associated 
with a rise in creatinine. And I just want to propose that in the setting of intravascular decongestion, there's a disconnect that happens between the serum creatinine and the actual GFR. That hemoconcentration itself is driving the creatinine up and doesn't necessarily mean kidney impairment. And the comment that Maria Rosa said earlier in the trial that she was talking about monitoring the degree of hemoconcentration that's occurring as you're diuresing, I think that's a direction that we might want to think of going. Marv, I have a slide on that. The intensivists have a correction factor for dilution of serum creatinine when IV fluids are administered. We call this the pseudo-AKI of diuresing and hemoconcentrating, where you're going to get that rise in creatinine as you, as you shrink plasma volume. So it's a beautiful point. And as the hemoconcentration, when it's quantified in these studies, is the clinical phenotype that is associated with the best long-term survival. And all the points everyone has made today were all brilliant. And it also just still shows how much complexity there is out there around the syndrome. And we're going to be talking about it a long time because our colleagues do need help. And it's really that art of medicine. When is the rise too much? Um, I remember once a colleague wrote to me, oh, Dr. Coco, I'm practicing permissive hypercreatinemia or permissive AKI. The BUN was like 140 and creatinine was eight. And I just cringed because that was clearly <laughs> excessive. Too far. And, it, and it's clearly oh. we're in a range much lower than that. And if you have a rapid um, trajectory of declining, rising creatinine or declining kidney function, and they're still overtly wet, I always tell the fellows, we've got to look for other things going on. Are they getting septic? Are they getting slipped some nephrotoxins? Let's spin the urine, look for casts, let's check urinary sodium. Yes. And you do all the yeah. detective work that is, are the reasons I went into a non-invasive specialty like nephrology, where you take all these clues and try to figure out what's going on. Um, because every patient is different and things can go awry. But we could go on for an hour. We could, we could go on for it. We're going to have to wrap up. But I mean, this crew would go on for several hours, Steve, and just love dialoguing with you. But I'm going to ask each panelist to give us a short soundbite about where do we take this field going forward? Acute decompensated heart failure, rise in creatinine. What's a take-home message you would like to give to the audience or where would you like the field to go from investigation? John Tierling. I think I'd start out with changing the paradigm in terms of pathophysiology and recognize the importance of the afterload on the kidney in acute heart failure and having that be an important aspect that you build into your therapeutic approach. I think first thing we have to do, and I think Bill alluded to it, I think we have disconnect we have to make. So we have to disconnect house officers' brains from the creatinine stop diuresis reflex. Think that thinking about creatinine as an rise as a, an adverse event, sometimes it represents an adverse event, but I think we have to back away from that and really think about hemoconcentration and how it's impacting creatinine and look for other biomarkers if we're really interested in kidney function. Mitch. Decongestion supersedes changes in creatinine, period. Until wow. they're anuric. Keep it simple. I love it. Maria Rosa, can you top that? Hard to, because I was going to say the same thing, but my next, the message I would like to leave this podcast with 
is that we need to enhance our collaboration with our nephrology colleagues and we need to work together because i doubt that unilateral decisions are going to advance the field jim Genuzzi. yeah thanks very much for the opportunity to join today chris I, i'm going to agree with what everyone has said with three points the first is almost always you need more diuresis so whenever in doubt you know turn it up i think that's yes. number one right <laughs> number two mechanistically we there's still much we need to learn about understanding hemoconcentration effects that dr constam has talked about in order to better understand when to stop we haven't really thought about enough and I'm developing mechanistic tools for developing means to know when a person non-invasively has reached a diuretic limit is really important. And then lastly, it would be very nice to be able to see further proliferation of therapies that do not activate the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. The SGLT2 inhibitors are a great example of that sort of timid step forwards towards a therapy that can enhance diuresis without worsening kidney function due to AKI. They worsen kidney function for other reasons. This is, I, I think, going to be an important future for the diuretic space. And we give the nephrologist the near last word. We have to break the tenismus with rise in serum creatinine, just like we've done now in the outpatient setting We with SGLT2 inhibitors, and we embrace the dip in GFR, the rise in creatinine due to that reduction in intraglomerular pressure. We have to come up with some easy to remember, love the rise or whatever, or something to vote. <laughs> with with actually with moderation because again not too high but that classic dip we all see now with every SGLT2 inhibitor trial where it's this modest change we know that it's going to be better outcomes and it really just comes down to decongestion and hold the fort with the kidney function unless it's really going awry. Wow, what a conversation! And maybe what I heard is if we could move the field, I like the concept of the urine sodium, maybe Mitch, an EHR trial where we randomize knowledge of a urine sodium versus not to see what we could do in a large sample size. But what a terrific conversation today. Thank you very much for being here on Heart of the Matter podcast. The collaboratory realizes that we need more collaboration with nephrologists, that's for sure, uh, to tackle this field. But uh, thank you, everyone, and we look forward to conversations going further. Have a great day.